We celebrate Easter once a year. Seems as though we get all gussied up for it and enjoy the day, and then all of a sudden it's over and we move on to the next event. Well, today on Graceful Truth, we'll turn back the hands of the clock just ever so slightly and spend some time looking at an Easter message delivered by Pastor Steve Converse this past Easter. Join us as we take a look at the seven last statements of Christ from the cross. Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse is up next. From Grace Bible Church in San Leandro, greetings in Christ and welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. As mentioned just a moment ago, we're spending some time on an Easter message delivered by Pastor Steve Converse this past Easter. For many, Easter is an event that comes and goes, but for us as Christians, if we really understand who we are, we understand that Easter is something that permeates our very being 24-7, 365 days a year. Especially the powerful words of Christ from the cross. Seven statements. We'll take a look at a couple of them today. Please join us and be encouraged in your relationship walk with Christ. Here's Pastor Steve Converse now with today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. This morning, I want to uh, take a little different approach to the resurrection. Um, A lot of times we'll talk about the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. Today, I want to talk about experiencing the power of the resurrection through Christ's last words on the cross. A lot of times people have the opportunity to share last words before they pass on. I remember reading an article in a newspaper about Richard Versali. He was an opera singer with the New York City Metropolitan Opera. And during his performance, he climbed up on this high ladder above the stage for a special scene that he was going about to perform. And he sang these words. Too bad you can only live so long. And at that very moment, Versali fell off the ladder and he died on the spot. He couldn't have known that morning when he woke up that those would have been the last words he spoke. See, in every life there comes a time, there comes a point when that life is going to come to an end. We all will have a last meal. We'll all take a last breath. And of course, maybe if we're lucky, we can give a last statement if we're so blessed. We may have the luxury of knowing what our last statement may be, but then on the other hand, we may not. Because no one knows for certainty when the end's going to come. But I think we will all die pretty much as we have lived. And a lot of times the statements at people's death seem to tell us a lot about how they lived. There was one very successful businessman who opened up a chain of restaurants across the country, and when his time came to die, his family gathered around his deathbed, and he realized he only had seconds to live, and he called everybody in nice and close, and he was so weak, and everyone leaned forward to hear what he would say. And in a faint whisper, they could barely hear it, he said, make sure you slice the ham thin. That tells you a lot about that individual, doesn't it? That summed up his life. Lou Costello of Abbott and Costello had a strawberry ice cream soda as his last meal. And the last words he was recorded to have said were, this was the best ice cream soda I've ever had. (laughs) See, history tells over time of famous people who have been able to give their last statements. 
or infamous, you may say, the atheist Voltaire, who is one of the most aggressive antagonists against Christianity. He wrote a lot of different works and books to try to undermine the Christian church. He once said of Jesus Christ, Curse the wretch. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand will destroy the edifice. It took 12 apostles to raise up. But as we know, Voltaire was less than successful. In fact, the nurse who attended on his deathbed remarked this. She said, for all the wealth in Europe, I would not watch another atheist die. According to the physician who was sitting with Voltaire at the time of his death, he cried out in utter desperation with these words, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. And then I will go to hell, and you will go with me, O Christ, O Jesus Christ. Hardened to the end. Voltaire pretty much died the way he lived, miserably. And yet, contrasting that with those who have known the Lord, you think of in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, we see Stephen being martyred, the first Christian martyr of the Christian church. And as he was being stoned, And as those stones were coming down, palmating his body, and his life was draining away, it says he said this, Look, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a glorious thing to say at your last statement. The final words of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, were this, I see earth receding and heaven is opening. God is calling. See, as we've considered the last words spoken by some of these people throughout history, I want us to look together this morning at seven statements, the last statements of Christ, the most famous last words of all time. We know that these words were spoken as Jesus was crucified on the cross. If you think about it, death by crucifixion was no picnic. It was literally death by suffocation. You were nailed to a cross and you had spikes driven through your your hands and your feet, and that's not what killed you. What killed you was your inability to push yourself up anymore so you could breathe, so your, your legs would collapse and it would crush your lungs. And over a period of time, you would literally die slowly. It was meant to be a torturous death. It wasn't meant to be quick. People hung sometimes for days on the cross before they died. And actually, the person would die when they could no longer breathe. Breathing was very difficult. Think how hard it was to speak. And yet Christ made seven statements that I want to cover quickly this morning with you. Because I think through these seven statements, we can truly see the power of the resurrection through the statements of Christ on the cross. The first statement there, Father, forgive them. Think about it. As Jesus hung on the cross, he gave these seven profound statements. Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You can find that in Luke twenty-three thirty-four. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The fact that Jesus' last words on the cross consisted of a prayer probably doesn't surprise us much. I mean, he had always been a man of prayer. Even those who generally refuse to pray at all, well, usually when they're in a tight spot or in an hour of crisis, they will pray. But I I would have expected Christ to pray something like, Father, help me. Or even his later statement that we're going to look at in a few moments. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But then, knowing Jesus like we do, it's only fitting that he should say what he said in the order that he said it. He did not pray in that dark hour for his loved ones first, or for his friends, or for his family. Who did he pray for? He prayed for his enemies. He modeled exactly what he taught. Remember when we went through Matthew chapter 5, verse 44? Here's what Jesus said. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Those are the words he modeled that very day on Mount Calvary as he gave his life up for us. Jesus had told Peter to forgive 70 times 7. Now he was doing just that. But when we pray under such circumstances... I don't know about you, but usually my prayer is, Lord, help. I need help. I'm in a situation here. God, don't you see what's going on? When Samson came to his dying hour in the Old Testament, he used his great strength to destroy his enemies. In contrast, Jesus showed meekness. He showed humility. He showed power under constraint. We also see from this example of Jesus that no one is beyond the reach of prayer. No one is beyond the reach of prayer. That should encourage our hearts today. Jesus was actually praying for the very people who had whipped him, who had scourged him, who had put the crown of thorns on his head, who crucified him. I mean, talk about loving your enemies. I mean, who could have seemed more hard-hearted than these people? Yet, Jesus prayed for them. I'm sure all of us, in our minds right now, we can think of somebody in our minds that we've been praying for, and we think, they're never going to come to Christ. They're too hard. Never. Not going to happen. Well, I want you to follow the example of our Lord on the cross. No matter how hopeless it may look, keep on praying for that person. Don't give up hope. And Jesus also recognized the enormity of their sin. Even if they didn't, they were mocking him as he was praying for them. It was as if Jesus were saying, Father, forgive them for they need forgiveness. And they need it desperately. Forgive them For they have committed a sin that is wicked beyond comprehension. They killed the very Son of God. Remember when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 37, he spoke of the fact that some of those present were personally involved in the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ... What was the reaction? It says, when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. That phrase appears only in the New Testament. It means to pierce. It means to stab. It depicts something that happens suddenly or unexpectedly. See, these folks, as they listened to Peter's sermon, it dawned on them. That they had been responsible for the very death of the Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah. I mean, can you imagine even being there at that time, but then having a part in it and feeling that guilt of actually killing God's Son, an innocent person, the one whom you had longed for for centuries, the one whom the hope of the nation was put upon. He'd finally come, and then they realized personally that they had just killed him. Instead of welcoming him, they rejected him. And they handed him over to their bitter and hated enemies, the Romans, for execution. And they realized that they had done it personally. And they asked, what should we do? So we know that this prayer that Jesus prayed on Calvary, ultimately, 
It was answered. It was answered. Maybe you're praying for somebody right now to see his or her need for God. Maybe you brought that friend to church. There's no spiritual interest in things at all. I want to encourage you to keep praying for that individual. Don't give up. Remember, next to Jesus were two criminals being crucified. We looked at this Friday night at our Good Friday service. And they were more than just common thieves. They possibly were revolutionaries, even like Barabbas was. Because it was pretty serious for them to be crucified. They were militant. They were were trying to overthrow the power of Rome through violence and anarchy. And they were there for their personal crimes. That's who was crucified on each side of Jesus. But Jesus was there for the crimes of all humanity. They were there against their wills, but he was there willingly. They could have escaped, or they could not have escaped, but he could have. Just with one word to heaven, the angels could have come and taken him off that cross. They were held to their crosses by nails, but as so many people have written about and sung about, he was held to the cross by his love. It's fascinating how these three men reacted as they looked death squarely in the face. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, the two thieves momentarily forgot their personal pain and they joined in the chorus of the voices of the onlookers around Christ. They said things like, He saved others, but He can't save Himself. (laughs) Oh, so this is the King of Israel. This is the King of the Jews. Let Him come down from the cross. Then we'll believe in Him. Look at him. He trusted God. Let God show his approval by delivering him. For he's the one that said, I am the son of God. And this mockery and this unbelief must have just driven just a piercing blow to Christ's heart. Even here on the cross, while he was giving up his life, they persisted in their mocking Christ. And he was there atoning for the very people who were spewing out venom his way. Matthew's Gospel tells us that both thieves joined in this mockery with the crowd. And yet Luke, over in Luke 23, 40, it says that one of them joined in, but then he was rebuked by the other. What a contradiction. It wasn't a contradiction, it was a conversion. Something happened to one of those thieves on the cross. Something significant happened to change the heart of one of those thieves hanging next to Jesus, bringing him to his spiritual senses. See, that's how salvation happens. Salvation doesn't happen by talking somebody into the kingdom of God or walking somebody through a track or, or, you know, preaching at somebody. All those things are part of it. They're tools that God uses. But ultimately, it's God that has to convert that heart. This one thief had watched with amazement, probably, as Jesus suffered the same crucifixion that he and the other had gone through. And yet he didn't complain. There was no angry protest or cursing from Christ. See, this thief saw something different in Christ. And then when Christ opened his mouth and he breathed those unbelievable words, Father, forgive them? Are you kidding me? That must have just done something in that thief's heart. His rebellion and his bitterness and his anger, all that no doubt had driven him all these years, just melted away because God converted him. The second statement I see here, as Christ is hanging on the cross, today you will be with me. See, the first words that Jesus uttered from the cross consisted of a prayer for his enemies. But his second statement was an answer to prayer. It was an answer to prayer. It was an answer addressed to one person. 
as he hung there on that cross. Jesus spoke to him as, as if he was the only person there in the whole world. And that one person was the thief. I mean, what joy must have filled this man's heart when he heard these words? Can't help to notice the man's immediate faith. Look at Luke 23, 42. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't say, hey, Jesus, remember me if you're going somewhere. If. He didn't say that. He said, when. It shows his faith. It's significant that Jesus said that this before his triumphal cry, it is finished. See, God had everything planned out perfectly. Timed right down to the, the words Christ spoke. Before all the supernatural phenomenon happened, the darkness during the daylight, before the veil was torn from top to bottom, it would seem at this moment that this thief, who only had come alive just spiritually, just moments before this, had more spiritual insight than any of Jesus' closest followers. I love the way this new convert hanging on the cross next to Christ defends Jesus to the other thief. He says in Luke 23, 40 and 41, Don't you fear God even when you are dying? We deserve to die for our evil deeds, but this man, he hasn't done anything. He's innocent. Seconds old in his newfound faith, this thief who's forgiven now is already speaking up Jesus. He's speaking about Christ. That's a lot more than his seasoned followers were doing at this very moment, where were they? And you know what? That's typical. That's typical of of what churches are made up of today. Often those who know the most do the least in our churches. While those who know the least do the most just seems the way it is. Well, both of these men heard the words of Christ as they hung next to him on the cross. Both saw his flawless, incredible example. Both were dying and they both needed forgiveness. One unrepentant thief died as he had lived. Hardened, indifferent. The other thief repented, turned from his sin, believed. And as a result, joined Jesus in paradise. I mean, that's the mystery of the gospel, isn't it? Hearing the same message, one man will listen with indifference... Yet, another man will have his eyes open to the need and will believe. It's truly a miracle. Third statement I see here, when Christ looks down and says, Woman, behold your son. At the foot of the cross, there was Jesus, his mother Mary, along with some other women, and the apostle John, the story tells us. I mean, just stop and think, those of you who are parents, can you imagine what's going through Mary's heart right now? I mean, this is her son. This is... The baby that she gave birth to. I mean, for most parents, most mothers certainly, it's exceptionally painful to watch any child suffer, let alone their own. I have an issue, even when we go back with Will and Crystal and the grandkids and they get in trouble and they got to get spanked. You know, I just got to bite my tongue. I got to leave the house. I can't, you know, be part of that. It's just tough to, to see and watch. Go to need, they need it. Trust me, they need it. They need the discipline. But as a grandparent, I don't want to see my grandkids getting spanked or getting in trouble. It's hard to watch. Well, think how Mary felt. Imagine Mary as she looked up at Jesus. Here he is hanging on the cross. He's beaten. He's marred. Some people say he, he, you could barely even tell he was a human being is how bad his face looked. His body was traumatized by scourging. That was her son. The forehead that she used to kiss when he was a little baby is now lacerated from a crown of thorns. 
His hands that she once held in hers are now pierced and they're bloodied by the spikes. I mean, think how Mary felt as she witnessed this brutal event. The interesting thing about the Word of God is it takes everything into consideration, even Mary's feelings. See, some 30 years before this time, before Mary is sitting there at the foot of the cross, when she had first taken little baby Jesus into the temple to dedicate him, a man by the name of Simeon did not want to die until he saw the Messiah. And Luke 2.29 says, When Simeon saw Jesus, he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He knew that Jesus, that little baby that Mary held in her hands, was the Messiah. And Jesus was there for a dedication. And then listen what happens. He turns to Mary and he gestures toward Jesus and he says, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Then he said this to Mary. Listen to this. I mean, how would you like to hear me say this at a baby dedication here in our church? Here's what he said. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I mean, can you imagine this poor mother bringing her newborn baby to the temple to be dedicated? And this man says, here, your heart's going to be pierced. You're going to feel a lot of pain. I bet you she didn't really know what he was talking about then. I bet you here at the foot of the cross, she reflected on that. She realized, wow, it all came to pass. On one occasion when Jesus was teaching, someone said, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to speak with you, Jesus. And you remember the reply, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Almost seems rude in our culture that he would reply in such a way. Then he looked at the disciples there and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my sister and my brother. See, you have to understand, Jesus Christ himself did not exalt his mother. He never did. Instead, he took the opportunity to stress the importance of doing the Father's will. Some churches got it all backwards. They take the mother of Christ and they exalt him right up there with him. That's not what Jesus would have wanted. That's not what God desires. The sword pierced a little deeper into Mary's soul, probably when she heard those words. And now, as Mary looked up and witnessed her son hanging on the cross, I believe that sword even pierced all the way through her soul, thinking, wow, this is my son. Perhaps for the first time, she realized that Jesus was not her child, but Jesus was God's. Maybe for the first time, Mary began to grasp the fact that this was not simply just her firstborn son, that this was God Almighty in the flesh. I think it all came into focus for her at that moment. And then the Lord gave his third statement from the cross. Looking down at Mary and John, he saw his mother. And he said, woman, behold your son. What was he saying? He was saying, it's not referring to himself. He's referring to John. He's saying, hey, as the oldest, I've been able to take care of you, mom, up to this point. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. And he's giving care of his mother over to John. Because Joseph probably is already dead at this point. We don't know, but he's nowhere to be found. He must have died. Jesus was saying, John, take care of my mother. And after that, he said, John, I'm committing her to you. From that hour on, John took care of Mary, took her into his home. And even as the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, he was thinking about the needs of his mother and her future on earth. Well, three down and four to go. You have been listening to Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. 
It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each and every week here on Graceful Truth. It's our hope and prayer that you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area, but if you're not, would you please consider this an open invitation, an official invitation, to join us. Come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up through grade 5. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, you're more than welcome to give us a call. You can reach us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Here's our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, you can reach us at 650-366-9923. If you'd like to know more about us, who we are, and what we believe, you're welcome to visit our website, gracefultruth.org. We even have a link to the church site there as well. Again, that's gracefultruth.org. You can even listen to these broadcasts again online through that website. Again, gracefultruth.org. And when you stop by, please drop us an email. Let us know you paid us a visit. That would encourage us a great deal. You're also welcome to write to us. Here's the address, 2225 Euclid Avenue, here in Redwood City, California. The zip code is 94061. Again, that's 2225 Euclid Avenue, Redwood City, the zip code 94061. We do thank you for spending time with us today. Trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Oh,